The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, startups, creatives, cuisine, Hollywood. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And as time went, you know, the dynamic of what Kim and I were doing went through this weird shift, right? You really just started having this feeling of like, we're not going to make it through this. What do we do if we lose our job? You know, pay was getting cut, different things were happening. And then you start to realize it's time. It's time to stop being the lion in the zoo that's getting fed every day who strolls out and his meat is laid out for him to being the lion in the jungle and figuring out how to go get your own food. In case you missed it, from big media's urge to merge to a hot restaurant pop-up's pandemic pivot to feeding the hungry, we're back at you with another rewind to recent broadcasts, samples forthcoming. So grab a spork and stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with a rewind to my recent interview with Omid Farhang. He started Majority, the award-winning Atlanta creative agency that markets diversity as the ultimate competitive advantage. His co-founder is none other than NBA Hall of Famer Shaquille O'Neal. It has been several decades of disruption if you think about print advertising, linear television and everything. So you picked a pretty inopportune time to launch a quote-unquote ad agency, was it, in the year 2021? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, if your priority is day drinking then uh, and wearing uh, overpriced suits, then you're right. I mean, I, I really screwed this up. But thankfully for me, um, I was born of a slightly different era. And, you know, growing up, I didn't really realize this was a profession. Um, maybe you can relate to this. But as the son of Iranian immigrants, and most immigrant stories uh, kind of replicate this, I was taught that there are three professions, you could either be a doctor, a lawyer or a loser. So, you know, I wasn't great at uh, math and science, uh, my track was going to be the law. And around uh, my early 20s, I became sort of introduced to advertising sort of at the tail end of the era that you describe. But what, you know, sort of the, the corporate glut and inefficiency and um, expense accounts, that was making way for a new kind of advertising that interested me and felt like it was at the intersection of creativity and business that kind of spoke to my DNA and trying to figure out how to create ideas that land in culture, that are disruptive, that make the press want to write about the idea, that make people want to talk about and share the idea. And so what attracted me to the business in the early 2000s, I think, remains the priority, at least for the agencies that I admire most. So first unpack for me what the traditional business model was. And I'm not going to Don Draper and Mad Men and whatnot, but let's say take me to the salad days before TV or print or anything else was disrupted when newspapers and magazines were thick, what would a Procter & Gamble or Unilever or Kraft do? They would get an agency of record, like they would partner with one place that would cover them in terms of print, TV, radio, 
uh, media relations? How would it work? Yeah, I just think there were so many different, uh, there were so many less ways to connect with a customer. I sort of hate the word customer or consumer, but there were so many less ways to figure out how a brand could sort of infuse itself into a person's life in some meaningful way that felt maybe more substantive than how we would describe 99% of advertising, which is ostensibly litter. And so I think, you know, sort of the previous era, the 20th century model, it was founded on good faith, which is a brand is telling me something and I can believe this brand because they seem trustworthy. And so if this brand tells me it tastes great and is less filling or has less preservatives or this cigarette filter is healthier for my lungs, I can pretty much take that at face value. And I think, you know, as we started to move into the new century and as, you know, with the proliferation of the Internet, I think you saw an even heightened sort of skepticism and cynicism that was warranted around advertising, which forced creative agencies to start to think about ways to connect with people that was, again, more meaningful than traditional disruptive advertising that really kind of marks the 20th century. So, you know, where you had one agency that was responsible for your print campaign and your television and out-of-home campaign, now you have, you know, a variety of agencies that specialize in creating branded messages in a variety of ways, laddering all the way up to branded entertainment, which when done well, isn't competing with other advertising, but is competing with your favorite shows, your, you know, your favorite films and your favorite music. So hold that thought. Again, we're going back to this time when linear TV was very healthy. Must-see TV Thursdays, I guess, peaked in the late 90s with Seinfeld. People were still listening for radio spots. I remember I went to the magazine industry at the turn of the century, where business magazines, at least like Fortune, Fast Company, Inc., Forbes, all of them, they were like phone books. They were thick, and it was almost like the tail wagging the dog. You had so many ads that you needed editorial. It was one great last hurrah before Google and Craigslist and everybody disrupted that digitally to say nothing else of Facebook and all the other social media players that came. So back in the day, you would have commensurate overhead with all of these things, right? If there were big Fortune 500 companies throwing around massive multi-million dollar commitments to, to, to get one of these Madison Avenue agencies as agency on record, full service, soup to nuts, I mean, talk to us about that era. You surely must have read about it. You know, I'm as, I know about it from reading the books of David Ogilvy and watching Mad Men, which actually seems like a pretty accurate reflection. And when I look at that era, when I read about that era, you know, obviously I'm not from it. So I don't, I don't look back at it with any nostalgia or fondness. I mean, the word that comes to mind as I reflect on it is really sort of glut and inefficiency. Yeah. And and again, it was great work if you could get it, but a, a lot of wasted dollars. And Well, which brings to mind the famous quote that you must hear about night and day in the ad industry is half my advertising spend is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. It's been attributed either to the US retailer John Wanamaker or UK industrialist. And that seems to be the problem that persists until we had tracking and things that digitally you could say with Google or, or with AdSense or the double-click technologies, the time you came of age, search the internet really truly crossed paths and disrupted Madison Avenue. Yeah. And precision marketing, which you know is insidious in its own way and is an enemy of creativity in its own way. But I think it's a misconception to look back at the previous era of advertising and believe that it lacked creativity. I think as you look at the work going back to Howard Gossage in San Francisco, certainly the the Titans, David Ogilvy, and all of these sort of famous names from which, you know, that, that inspired Mad Men. 
You know, I think it's funny. You can go back and look at a one show annual, which is kind of the one of the main award shows in our industry and go back and just open one from the early 90s or the late or mid 80s. And you'll actually see that, you know, nothing is new and that there are ideas that are sort of being presented as original today that are just kind of 2023 variations of ideas that were landing in culture through more traditional media in the mid and late 80s. Did you have anything to do with that dancing chicken and Burger King? The dancing chicken was one of the ads that got my attention about what advertising could be and intrigued me about breaking my parents' heart, uh, <laughs> not going to law school and choosing this path instead. And And the dancing chicken, we sort of look back at it it certainly looked back on as as rudimentary and and simplistic, but remember. Well, tell us, tell us, remind us what it was. I was an intern at the New York Times when it was big, but it was a Burger King campaign where you could go online. It was before mobile, on a desktop browser, and tell the chicken to do various things. That's right. So it was a campaign for Burger King. It was done by Crispin Porter Bogusky. Uh, I believe uh, this was about four years before I started at the agency. It was one of the ideas they created that that made Crispin Porter really a disruptor in the industry and got the attention of creatives like myself as the only place we wanted to work. And the way it worked was, uh, it was called subservient chicken. It was a man in a chicken suit. Uh, he was on, right. he was on what appeared to be, um, a surveillance camera. And what you would do is you would go on your browser on subservientchicken.com and you would type any instruction. So you could say, put your hand on your head. You could say, touch yourself in this place or that. You could say, do a funny dance. Any of thousands of inputs, and the chicken would seemingly respond. Now, behind that, the people who would eventually hire me were essentially creating spreadsheets that had responses for anything someone could type in. But this was really the first kind of magic trick of interactivity that would define the next you know, 15, 20 years of advertising to come. So what about your personal experience, Omid, in, in going to ad school? You finished a four-year college program and you went to ad school in Miami, my hometown. Yeah, I, you know, I when I interview people and they tell me they studied advertising in college or marketing in college, I actually get kind of bummed out because I think, at least for creatives and strategists, it's usually the thing that you were interested in before you knew that this was a profession that will serve you well. For me, it was political science and psychology and just being sort of a general student of pop culture. And, and so those are the things that kind of differentiated me as I kind of followed my interests in agencies. But as I think about advertising school then and now, I, I equate it less to a graduate school program than to a trade school. And so, I see. and so you're almost, you know, you're learning how to put a book together and the book is the thing that you will use. It's a book. The book is essentially a collection of fake ads. And that book is what you'll use to get a job, at which point you'll take the book you worked so hard on for two years at advertising school and you'll throw it in the trash can. Tell us about that experience. I mean, you put in your chops both at, at CAA and Crispin Porter and Boguski, working in, I guess, the traditional industry, working in, I wouldn't call it, you know, entertainment representation and thought leadership. You founded Majority during the pandemic in 2021. What was the opportunity and what was the backstory? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is I never had an ambition to start a company. Um, I worked at large agencies and holding company agencies. And uh, they treated me well. And those jobs, you know, it's great work if you can get it. They pay well and they book all your flights and the snack room is always well stocked. But for me, I was grappling with what a lot of my colleagues um, and peers in the industry were grappling with in, in 2020 in the wake of the death of George Floyd, which is, you know, as agencies, we're really good at talking a big game about disruption 
we try to sell disruption to our clients. Just in this interview, I probably used the word disruption five times. It's one of our favorite sure. words, you know. But when it comes to disrupting our own industry as it relates to representation in our, in our industry, boy, the marketing industry has sucked at disruption for over a century. And so what you've seen is over the course of several decades, the typical agency in America is roughly 20 to 25% people of color. And that number has remained stagnant. And after the events of 2020, what you saw from the largest agencies, the holding company agencies with staffs, staffs of several thousand is lots of playbooks and lots of panels and lots of task forces. And playbooks, panels, and task forces are great, but that's what you have to do when you have several thousand employees and you're not meaningfully changing that 25% people of color number you know, within a decade. And that's if you're really committed to doing it. And so for us, I observed not just an opportunity, but a necessity that the current system is in this necessary but very slow state of reform. Here is a chance for new companies to emerge that can help accelerate the rate of change by doing what the, the status quo has failed to do, which is to build diversity as a foundational pillar from the start, rather than trying to fix this thing that's been broken for 100 years. Full disclosure, stay with us. You were listening to some of my interview with ad exec Omid Farhang, who co-founded creative agency Majority with NBA Hall of Famer Shaquille O'Neal. The episode, Free Agency, is available wherever you get your pods. Chef Michael Lindsay, Lily Pearl, Buttermilk and Honey, ML Steak, stopped by to dish on how he and his wife and business partner went off on their own during the pandemic to open seven Richmond restaurants and counting. Joining me at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, where I occasionally record, is Chef Mike Lindsay. How are you, sir? I'm doing incredible, man. Thank you for having me. Life comes at you fast because one minute, it's uh, 2018, and we're doing an event. It was called Ace the Midterms, where I wanted to get a couple of Richmond chefs and everything. And a, a mutual friend is Chris Sway. And he suggested you from a concept that he had recently opened was Red Salt, you know, Sushi and Chop House. And I just remember that there was this chef that everybody's talking about at Red Salt, that everybody's talking about his cornbread right. at a sushi shop. Like, was some family homage cornbread, like a round loaf that everybody was hoarding. And then next thing I know, you're in Forbes this week. And it says that Chef Mike Lindsay opened seven restaurants in Richmond since 2020 with more on the way. There's Lily Pearl. There's Bully Burger. You took over Pops on Grace, and I said, I have to have him on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been great, man. It's been incredible. Great trip. You know, since I've seen you, a lot has happened. Kim and I stepped out on our own in November 2020 with Lily Pearl. We opened Lily Pearl in the middle of the pandemic, of course. Everybody thought we were nuts. We were crazy. There was no money to get from anybody. But Virginia Commonwealth Bank, I, I hit everybody up to get money. And, you know, the guy Dusty there was, called me on the phone. And he said, hey, hey, Mike, I believe in your vision. I believe you can do this. He gave us 50 grand. Kim and I had 50 grand of our own, and, and we set out to do this thing. So where, take me back all the way. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you meet Kim, your wife and partner? Yeah, yeah. so I was born in New Bern, North Carolina. Spent a lot of my time in San Antonio, Texas. My dad was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. uh, we left San Antonio, moved to Virginia Beach. When I was in ninth grade, we moved back to North Carolina. Culture shock at that point for me. It was, you know, a place I stopped going in the summers. It was country. I hated it. I didn't like it. It wasn't convenient. No sidewalks, you know, but it turned me into an incredible person. It turned me into a credible man. And it made me realize that things aren't important. It's substance in yourself 
and your neighbors and love and those types of things. So I, I just claim North Carolina as home. I'm a North Carolina boy, Southern roots. And to that, all those things have made me who I am. My beautiful, incredible wife, Kim Love, is from Cali. Yeah, she's born in the San Diego area. And you guys met in the restaurant business? Yeah. She was with Yard House Restaurants, moved out to Virginia Beach to open that location. So Yard House was acquired about a decade ago by the parent of the Olive Garden, which is Darden Restaurants. One of these mega groups has, you know, so many locations across the United States publicly traded. So you, you guys initially learned at that concept. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think the crazy run for Kim and I is that we were corporate for so long. And when I say corporate, you know, like, you know, the Cheesecake Factory, Capital Grill, Roos Chris, like where it's these incredible organizations that run really well, being with Darden and never really wanting to open our own restaurants made us really good because we were really, really good in the careers that we did, being that we pushed ourselves to get to the top, you know, in, in those in those places. So with those disciplines, learning how to really manage people, manage food, manage money, all those things you learn from people who do it really good was what made us successful moving on. Financially, what warms a corporate chef's heart when the return family or couple comes in and gets wine, appetizers, dessert, everything kind of soup to nuts? Like, What moves the needle in the restaurant business, whether corporate or mom and pop? Man, that's it. That's, that's exactly where you hit it. Butts and seats? Yeah, butts and seats and a full dining experience. Most of your guests coming in, starting with an appetizer or two, they're starting with a glass of wine or a cocktail. They're having one more cocktail before their dinner comes. They enjoy entrees. They stop eating. They pack their entrees up, and then they enjoy dessert. You know, sometimes you get that third cocktail, or you get a full bottle of wine out of that. Um, to us in the restaurant business, that is the, the, the complete game, the trifecta, the, the everything that you want. You know, we do love bar guests that come in, just want to have a drink or appetizer or just come in for dessert. We love that as well. But to have those complete diners, that seals the deal because now that takes you from a $19 per person average to a $40, $50, $60, you know, some cases $100 per person average based on that dining experience. But is most of the margin in the liquor or is it in the bookends, kind of the appetizers and the dessert? I know this gets to liquor, the liquor, liquor, really. Yeah, liquor, beer, and wine is is where you make your money. You want to sell cocktails. Just think about it, right? You got an entree on the menu. That entree is between twenty and thirty dollars. A person drinks two cocktails, especially at today's price, between twelve to fourteen dollars. Two cocktails. That already equals what they had in their entree almost. So, your margins are incredible. With food, is between thirty and forty percent food costs. You know, you're like 10 to 12 with beer, high teens, low 20s with liquor, same thing with wine. So that is where you make the money. So how did you end up in Richmond? Because again, it was Eat yeah. Restaurant Group, which we've had Chris Sway on the show. I remember his interview. He worked at a Baskin Robbins and he was an immigrant. And his, when he was little and after school, he was small enough to be put in the, in the walk down freezer to kind of clean it out and everything. And how he goes from this to working tables at Peking to then having a, like a 20 restaurant empire across Virginia and just opening them left and right. How were you recruited to that? How were you attracted to that? Man, so, you know, we moved here in 2016, Kim and I, and have two teenage kids that were here. They were in Richmond. I was in North Carolina. We were just doing it every other weekend or me coming up when they have games, whatever. My son was like, yo, pops, I need you here. I need you around more. You know, Kim was about to be, you know, in a big position with Yard House. I went to her. I was like, hey, 
kids need us there. You know, can we move to Richmond? Without a hesitation. Absolutely. So we moved. We started looking for jobs. I got a job with Matchbox. Uh-huh. Um, Which was briefly here. Yeah, yeah, the pizza spot. And Kim also ended up getting a job with Matchbox as well. So I opened up the one here in, in Richmond in Short Pump. Kim was the GM in Woodbridge. So she was driving up to Woodbridge. In Northern Virginia. In Northern Virginia. Yeah. I knew Chris Staples from my Firebirds days. Everybody knows Chris Staples. <laughs> yeah, good dude, good dude. Yeah. And I just hit him up like, yo, man, this is Mike Lindsay. Uh, I don't know if you remember me. It's been some years, but it was like, absolutely. I was like, listen, my wife is here. She's driving up to Woodbridge right now. We don't love it. Do you guys have anything in the mix that, you know, she, she could be on board for? So sat her down, interviewed her. Kim pretty much got the job, was a GM of Fat Dragon. Oh, yes. Right. And then. Scott's edition. Yep. And then the goal was for her to open the Red Salt. So. I'm at Matchbox, you know, we're starting to meet Ren and Chris Sway and these people as Kim gets a little deeper into it and, you know, talking with Ren, who was the vice president kind of running, opening the restaurants. He was like, hey, man, would you sit down with me? I know you work at Roost Chris, Capital Grill. We're doing a steakhouse. Can you just come walk through the kitchen with me and just tell me what you think, what, what you think we should do? Started from there to... I would love to offer you a job. And I was like, listen, Kim's been waiting for this position. She wants it. I'm not going to take that from her. So he was like, let me talk to Chris Sway. Let me see if he's cool with you guys working together. Signed off on it. So Kim and I opened that restaurant together. Red Salt. Red Salt. And yes. I was at the Soft Open. Yeah. Now, for everybody, you know, is not very familiar with Richmond. This is the far, far west end of Richmond. They built a huge development where there was farmland largely. And I remember that there was a group, a large group of investors that was asked to put money into this concept. Chris Sway is very famous with Chinese food, with uh, Asian food, with wild ginger, fat dragon, kind of clearly Osaka where he cut his teeth, the Japanese. And people said, okay, interesting. You're opening up a steakhouse slash sushi place. And they bring you in and you had some individual touches that you put in like the cornbread i yes, remember like yes. what sushi and steak place is famous for its cornbread but you persisted nevertheless that's it and i think the biggest piece was Ren was like do your thing right take what you've learned take where you've been and speak to it and speak to richmond and that's what we're able to do so we're able to put you know mac and cheese on there and cream corn and then of course the sweet potato cornbread which that's right. you know turned into an incredible hit but what it did was I think it created an incredible balance where you almost had two restaurants. I was able to add in a lot of Asian flavors on the steak side as well. Um, and I think it turned out to be, you know, a kind of a great concept. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah. So where were you when the pandemic broke and we all got the news in 2020? Because this was, I remember, was a near-death experience for restaurant groups. They immediately had to contort to do carry-out business, contactless, curbside pickup delivery. They had to figure out all the gig drivers and everything else and try to get kind of liquor for pickup as well. Like, tell me what was happening with you and your wife conversation when that broke. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really wild is that we just had an incredible trip to Miami. My hometown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were there for food and wine, South Beach, had an incredible time. We get back maybe a week later, it hits the fan. And as a group, you know, Kim, you know, was newly pregnant. But we just dug in, did research, found out everything we could. And Kim pretty much built this program of protocols, what we're going to do, how it was going to work. This was under EAT. This was all under EAT. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, she kind of built that. 
we worked through it, stumbled through it, you know, the first couple of months. And then we really got it down where we were operating at a high level, putting out food. And then, you know, the aspect of there's no staff there. Now we're overworking the managers. They hate being all there all day. So then we went through that piece of it, right? So we lost a couple of managers, you know, they were getting freaked out. So then we hit into the second level of that, creating distance, curbside, rotating the, the, the schedule so people but that's, can relax that's more. But that's in stay alive mode because there can't be margin in that. You're not, again, by definition, you're not sitting around and getting the soup to nuts, tipping many cocktails, many appetizers, putting the carry out away and then getting dessert. It's very much just trying to sell stuff and keep the kitchen functioning. Right. And and the crazy thing is everywhere was pretty good, but Fat Dragon was beyond busy. They were still doing like the same numbers and it was harder to operate because everything was a phone call. Everything was online and it created a, a chaos. Hmm. So we figured it out. We learned how to do it. We, we, we learned how to get it straight. And as time went, you know, the dynamic of what Kim and I were doing the dynamic of the restaurant, the hierarchy, all those things went through this weird shift, right? You really just started having this feeling of like, we're not going to have jobs. We're not going to make it through this. Kim and I are both high earners in, in this group. What do we do if we lose our job? You know, pay was getting cut. Different things were happening. Um, you know, you start feeling a little underappreciated. And then you start to realize it's time. It's time to stop being the lion in the zoo that's getting fed every day who strolls out and his meat is laid out for him to being the lion in the jungle and figuring out how to go get your own food. You were listening to some of my interview with acquisitive chef Mike Lindsay. Catch the whole episode. It's called Restless Restaurateur. Elsewhere, streaming viewership just surpassed traditional TV, but profits are elusive, costs are out of control, and there's just so much login and subscription fatigue right now. CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman stopped by to deliberate who needs to merge with who. I cannot recall a period where we went from everything being so flush in Hollywood within like 20 months to kind of so bare and everybody cutting budgets. You know, HBO, which was spun off unceremoniously from AT&T, is cutting things left and right. You have the streamers suddenly in this season of austerity and you're in the middle covering that. It's been pretty unbelievable, I will say. I mean, maybe what's even more unbelievable about it is I spent years writing about how Netflix was upending this industry. And then what happened sort of really almost overnight is that all these legacy media companies then tried to be Netflix. And when the bottom fell out of Netflix around January of this past year, that was the catalyst for this entire industry pullback. So in essence, Netflix went from disruptor to industry leader that everyone has followed. And now everyone's future is sort of tied to Netflix's. So as goes Netflix, as goes all these other companies that Netflix spent the last 10 years disrupting. So we're clearly in this period of login fatigue. I think anybody could have predicted it three, four years ago. Whether it's the New York Times or Spotify, Netflix, Hulu, you know, there's always a premium tier. Even, you know, CNBC, you're being hit up with all of these content relationships, you know, to get past the wall garden. And it was going to hit up against something at a certain point. Yes, you'd have to pry somebody's Netflix login from their cold, dead hands. But at a certain point, you know, is it $20 a month is the pain point, $22, $23 a month? 
they stop growing domestically and everybody's going after the same customer, the same fatigued customer, is that where we are? I think that's where we are in this country, at least. You know, Netflix still holds out a lot of hope that there's still a decent growth runway globally. And if you look, you know, they release these earnings statements every quarter and they list out the ARPU, the average revenue per user. And certainly in other countries, the amount of money that people pay for Netflix is way lower than what they pay in this country and in Europe. So there's an argument there that absolutely they still have room to run because it's not really the same apples to apples comparison. But in this country and in Canada and in Europe, there's certainly an argument that we've hit the wall. We've hit the saturation point and the business is going to change somewhat now because now that we're at that wall, it's not like the price increases are going to stop. They're probably going to keep going. That has been the plan all along. But that, words, prompts, that prompts churn. That prompts people to leave. And then it's expensive to acquire customers all over again. You have to have teasers. You might have an ad tier or something else going on. It just throws a monkey wrench into your business. So, so that's this is where we are now, Robin. So it causes churn. The amount of subscribers may start to drop. And that's why you see Netflix doing password sharing crackdowns and advertising tiers, as you mentioned, and video games. Like We're on to phase two here. The growth needs to come from somewhere else, and that's where that company is. The problem with some of these legacy media companies is they haven't been doing streaming for the past 10 years. So they're still in phase one. They're still in money-losing uh, subscriber ad phase one, but the growth may have stopped for those companies too. Maybe not as drastically it has uh, for Netflix because they're not quite there from a cyclical standpoint. But uh, the major problem here is if general streaming growth has stopped because people's wallets have, are now saturated because they're subscribing to too many of these things, and these companies are still in the money-losing stage of streaming, then what? Like, are they supposed to pivot again? Is there some sort of new product that these companies are going on? Are they supposed to abandon streaming? I, I don't know exactly, so a lot of people just kind of shrug and say, like, well, I guess they'll consolidate with each other because there is no other room to go for you know, the, the, the non-huge legacy media companies. You want to talk about a consolidated Frankenstein. You've covered Hulu quite well. For people who are not familiar, Disney currently owns 66% of Hulu, while NBC Peacock parent and Alex Sherman parent Comcast owns the rest. You cover this so well. And right now they're kind of in this courtship over, does Disney want to buy the rest out of Comcast? And if so, Comcast wants a rich price, or Comcast might be bluffing and saying, heck, we'll buy it off of you. It's a pretty nifty platform. And you share this news. I didn't even realize this was a thing. The recently ousted CEO of Disney, kind of in these negotiations with Comcast CEO Brian Roberts, you reported, as they tried to escalate the sale of Hulu, according to people familiar with the matter, Comcast CEO floated a number of possible ideas, including Disney selling ESPN to Comcast. I mean, ESPN? Isn't that a cash cow? Isn't that something that's kind of supporting all of Disney's business, including the theme parks right now, which are overrun with people and the, the ticket prices are high and the get in front of the line prices are high. But I never knew that was on the table for ESPN to be sold. Well, to be fair, Disney said no. So I'm not sure how, how on the table it was. But look, first of all, there is truth to that, I'm told, by good authority. And Bob Chapek, when he was CEO there, was at least considering the idea of either spinning or selling ESPN for a little while. He ultimately decided 
Uh, no, that I, I don't want to do that. And I'm not really sure it was all that serious. At any but isn't point. ESPN the last frontier? And live sports are controversial, but we just saw these ratings for the Super Bowl and everything. It's the last platform where kind of linear cable is still hugely profitable for them. You get people that watch it live overwhelmingly. The ad rates are high. Shouldn't ESPN... I mean, but then again, the flip side of that is it's very hard to have a full-fledged ESPN streaming product that doesn't cannibalize from the very lucrative channel on television. A lot of the the issue you just laid out is the issue that every one of these publicly traded companies is going to have to go through, which is, yes, you're right. ESPN still makes a lot of money for Disney, overwhelmingly more than many of the other businesses within that company. It also is absolutely the last stand of linear bundled TV. In other words, the marquee programming on ESPN still is not available on streaming. And by and large, other than some news products, that's not really the case for anything else. News and sports are what's keeping the bundle alive. And that bundle is a much better business than streaming for Disney and every other legacy media company. All of that is true. That said, Wall Street, more than anything, values growth, and it is a very hard sell to convince investors that ESPN is a growth business because millions and millions of people cancel cable every year, and all of those people pay $10 or whatever it is per month for ESPN, whether or not they watch. So to your point about transitioning ESPN from linear to streaming – In the streaming world, only people that want to watch ESPN will pay for ESPN. So the number of people subscribing to ESPN is going to go down and down significantly. The peak U.S. household in 2012 that were cable subscribers was something like 100 million. There were 100 million people in this country that were paying for ESPN. How many of those people are going to pay for ESPN in a streaming world? And how much does Disney have to charge for ESPN in a streaming world? Well, let's say it's 25 million out of the 100 million are diehard sports fans. Let's say it's 40 million. I don't really know what the right number is. Let's say it's 50 million. Well, if it's 50 million, if they're charging $10 at 100 million, they're going to need to be charging $20 at 50 million in order to just break even. And again, Wall Street wants growth. So maybe the number that they charge for ESPN streaming needs to be even higher than $20. And that's at $50 million. If the number's more like $40 million, then maybe they need to charge $25 or more. And now you have an ESPN streaming product at $25 per month that's more expensive than every other streaming service out there. You know, look, it's a tough sell, and that's what Disney's up against, and that's why some people argue maybe this business makes sense as its own separate thing, or at least outside of everything else going on at Disney. I do want to ask you, I want to go down this corridor with sports. I am a huge Lakers and Dodgers fan. I also grew up in Miami where I love the Dolphins. I love the Miami Hurricanes. I know you're a ginormous 49ers fan following you on social media. Sorry about the playoff flameout. But I'm still a lot of recovering. Ahead but for thank you guys, you. what's stopping me and uh, and others from having an a la carte relationship with, let's say, the Los Angeles Lakers, especially as kind of virtual encore technology, Oculus stuff advances? I know that there's enormous money on the table with the cable networks and ESPN and NBC and NFL 
and NBA on TNT or whatever it is, why can't these leagues and these teams go directly to fans and have that a la carte relationship with them? I don't want to pay for the bundle. I don't care about college lacrosse. I don't care about hockey. I don't care about ESPN 6 and kind of, you know, pickleball or cornholing. And that's just ginormously inefficient. It's putting so much stuff in my shopping cart that I don't want. But I'm really open to having a direct relationship with the Lakers and Dolphins and Dodgers. Yeah, so what has prevented this from happening at this point is just there's I mean you sort of answered your question in the intro. So much money is thrown at the leagues because of the desperation of media companies to get these properties that it's always been the safe bet for the leagues to just take the money. In other words, just give them the exclusive content whether that's NBC or in the most recent iteration for the NFL for Sunday Ticket, YouTube TV, which is, again, you know, paying $2 billion or so a, a, a year. Or Amazon Thursday night. Yeah, Amazon Thursday night, a billion dollars every season. You know, ESPN pays well over $2 billion for Monday Night Football. The money is just so big that it has never interested the leagues to be like, maybe we should try something else because what if the something else doesn't work? And to some degree, it is a gamble. But I think that, in the next iteration of rights. So the league signed an 11-year deal. There is an out clause after, I think it's seven years. The NBA is about to renew its rights. Those rights end at the end of the 2024-25 season. They will renew them again. I don't know exactly how long it will be. Let's say it's, you know, the last deal was nine years. Let's say it's something similar to that. And again, they have some sort of out clause after seven or so. Seven years from now, I think it is absolutely possible that the technology has advanced from a broadband standpoint and also maybe other you know gizmos and doodads are around kind of like you said from from a augmented reality standpoint or whatever it may be that it does now interest the leagues to at least attempt to have some sort of a la carte relationship on a per team basis where the price elasticity is tested in other words, there may be a way because the ideal here is to charge people as much money as possible. And I do think the leagues understand that there are certainly diehard fans out there that are willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money if they can get all access, you know, every game, every interview behind the scenes in the locker room, exactly kind of what you're talking about. So, yeah, I think we're headed there. But I also think we're at least seven years away from that. That was some of our recent episode, Media's Urge to Merge. Catch the whole interview wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe at link fulldradio.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can DM me if you'd like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Finally, the Underground Kitchen, one of the most exclusive fine dining tickets across dozens and dozens of cities, is now also bent on nourishing the food insecure. Founders Michael Sparks and Kate Hauk discussed how these paths converged. I remember I was at home, and, and listeners out there who hear this, they say Robin Farzad's going to talk about being with his wife when the school district you know, canceled the rest of the semester and the NBA season was punted on and you knew something was coming across the pond. Oh, yeah. And it actually happened in 2019 for us because we were in Boston. Remember no, that, that was in 2020. 
Was that 2020? That was 2020. But, but before that, in in that fall of 2019 is when those first little things about COVID started coming out and the coronavirus. And Michael, every day we were working out of his house in the museum district and he'd come down and he'd say, I'm going to get the corona. We're all going right. to get the... And I just kept telling him, no, come on. And then we were doing a corporate event in Boston in uh, February of 2020. And it was around the time of the super spreader up there that... 300,000 people got infected from someone in Europe. And we were there and we got infected. Turned out we were at the same bar they were. <laughs> night, and, uh, Did you have symptoms? Uh, uh, yeah, but that was a week or two before they really started saying what the symptoms were. So it was still when they were trying to keep it. We thought we had the flu. Right. We flew home. No mask. I mean, no one. Nah, it was, nobody knew. Well, we were slathering everything in Purell back then. Yeah, nobody right. knew anything. Yeah, but no, not even then. There was no mask. There was no Purell. There was nothing because we had no information. So we went home not knowing what was going on. And we, Kate was sick for- I was uh, down for about six weeks. Six weeks. And I was down for about three weeks. And not knowing, it was during that time when we were sick that- they started reporting on if you have these symptoms, if you blah, 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 then it's COVID and, and it's serious. I mean, I was, I was down. I'd lost. I, when, you were about, when you were down and symptomatic and out for the count for those several weeks, did you game in your head that this is something that's going to shut down all of hospitality? Kate showed up at my door and she looked at me and she says, you know what we got to do? And I said, yes. So we refunded tens of thousands of dollars worth of tickets. We shut everything down and uh, Kate and I pity party. And I yeah. think we All of our corporate contracts called and said, you know, the company that we'd just been with, we were ready to go do an international thing. And they called and they said, I have no idea what's happening, but we need to put all this on hold. Like, obviously, we're but not going to- It's not like you were scrutinizing your business interruption insurance. Like, I, I think Danny Meyer- tried to put in for it or sue his insurer to cover this. Yeah, we no, we weren't. We were more thinking our whole business is built around being, bringing people together for these intimate events. And obviously, we can't do that. And it's pretty obvious that travel is going to get knocked for a loop as well. So we're pretty much, that's the basis of our business right now. So we're screwed. We just need to shut down and figure out what's going to happen. And the interesting thing is we've been talking about, you know, kind of parachuting into these cities and dealing with things like Baltimore. Like We were uniquely positioned to pivot. It's what we do. No matter how much we plan, something always goes pear-shaped. You know, all the wheels come off the wagon at least three times a day around here. So we did have two weeks of really severe pity partying. Well, we went, came, <laughs> that came with a lot of wine and Kahlua in the pity morning. Party. And we called my mom and my mom said... uh, I didn't raise two fools like this. I, I want you guys to figure out, you and Kate are going to be fine. I want you to figure out a way to help people. And that night I had a God experience and I went to sleep and God told me to make soups and breads for everybody in Richmond, uh, anybody and everybody who needs it. And so I called Kate the next morning mm -hmm. and I said, yeah, I was ready for our, our morning, like. Kahlua, Kahlua coffee. filled coffee phone call where we got to So booth. God told you Kahlua didn't. <laughs> no, Kahlua didn't. God came. No, we had more. Kahlua told us more, but not that. <laughs> to understand this, you had a lot of work in process if it was. A lot of food in the fridge. A lot of food in the fridge. A lot of chefs who couldn't work. Well, and to understand kind of our model that way, like I said, we didn't have a staff. So we didn't have chefs on staff, but we have a whole network of chefs that we work with. So we were kind of intimately into what was happening in the brick and mortar restaurant and hospitality scene. So Michael would get text messages and calls from all our chefs saying they shut down my restaurant. You know, they say I can still use the kitchen, but you know, I have no work or my restaurant is closing or my private chef business 
is going under. So we had all these people in our network who had families to support that suddenly had nowhere to go. And we did have the the fridge full of food because we had a whole tour scheduled That's right. and ready to go. And so, so these chefs and servers and people in the hospitality industry would help the community ostensibly and help themselves. They could take food home for their family. That's right. Exactly. None, of, none of them were unemployed during COVID with Underground Kitchen. Any chef that had association with us worked and got paid. How did you have revenue? Did you just do it out of reserves? So this is Richmond, uniquely Richmond. Richmond's a special place. When they hear things and people need help, the money started pouring in. And Kate, with Kate's leadership, we she raised, I think, almost half a million dollars. Half a million dollars in, in grants and donations that first year. And reserves, not business, but Michael and I put a lot of our personal, obviously, time and money into this to keep it going. Because once we delivered meals that first week, we had 175 households that we delivered meals to. And Michael and I split them up and drove them around the city and heard everybody's stories and what was going on and how terrified everyone was. And we were, it was like post-apocalyptic weirdness out here. We were the only people on the roads. That's right. There was nobody out. And we had special letters from the mayor, from the mayor saying that we were allowed, we're allowed to be on the road. Yeah, yeah. To, right. we have a per, we're not just driving around being weird, but we have a reason that we're out here and we're front line. And I'm going to get a little hokey here, but ergo this paradox that I'm told by people who have helped till it hurts that if you wake up depressed if you wake up missionless if you have that free fall feeling and the sunday scaries and the monday scaries and everything if there's nothing else you can do helping will get you out of bed and will increase the balance sheet of the universe and so even though you guys didn't know where your next kind of six months of income was going to come we knew we had we had a mission and that got us out of that re-energized us got us off the couch let got me, us out let of me bed cite, meanwhile i'm citing here from a, a profile i saw you in us news and world report which picked up an rtd story in 2021 more than 34 million people including 9 million children faced food insecurity according to the united states department of agriculture families in low income urban areas often live in food deserts with limited access to a grocery store what we have here in north churchill whether it's if you're lucky you have a convenience store or a dollar tree you can buy some mac and cheese, uh, maybe a pint of milk for 3 or $4, but no fresh greens. I understand from uh, Steve Markell, you work with his uh, supermarket in North Church Hill, that the people who worked there, when they started working, had never seen an avocado in their lives, like a live avocado. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, we talked to people who did uh, food drives up in North Church Hill during that time. Uh, the other thing we found, not only on the food identification but what to do with it. They were trying to give away bags of potatoes and people weren't picking up the potatoes when they came to pick up food. And one woman said, I started hawking potatoes like I was a carny. And she said, this is a French fry. <laughs> I can, you can bake it. It's you also, can fry it. It's also mashed potatoes, but people didn't know what to do with it. There was all this food available right. that wasn't processed, but if it didn't come processed, they were just kind of out of ideas. Parallel to this, in the United States, according to the USDA, food waste is estimated at upward of 30 to 40% of the food supply. We know our restaurants. We know the rules say you can and can't donate certain things if it's been opened up. I had this experience once when I was uh, working at a Starbucks uh, on River Road and there was a snowstorm coming in. And they said, sorry, everybody, we have to shut this down. And she brought out the trash bin, the manager, and she started to clear everything from the case into the trash bin. I know it's processed food. It's not great for you. But Still. I said, you know what? I could take those around the neighborhood, give them the kids and everything. They're like, oh, that would have to be on you because we're not allowed to donate or everything. And you multiply that times the tens and tens of thousands of restaurants with 
extra food that's get dumped out every night. And as you said last night at the dinner, this is methane spewing food yeah. in landfills. <laughs> right. And so you have this mission right now to capture as much of the excess food in this plague, in this pandemic as possible mm -hmm. and redirect it from your many sources at least in RVA Dime. Well, and that that was the, you know, Michael and I talk about those little slivers of silver lining in the pandemic that early on, because we were in uncharted territory, a lot of that went out the window and we got donations from hotels and the universities and, and things that just said, we have food, all this food. And food manufacturers. And food manufacturers that just said, we have this stuff sitting here. Can you use it? Can you distribute it? And so, you know, we were we were wild west around here for a bit. And it was great because we were able to get in a lot of products. And, and so you set up the underground kitchen community first, mm -hmm. effectively not for profit. Yep. Were you able to take PPP or any sort of assistance from the government to help you out? Not for the nonprofit. Not for that. Um, we were able to, yeah, we did because we didn't, we didn't have a, we didn't have staff. We had nothing before the pandemic. So um, we were able to write for a lot of granting institutions out there put things toward food insecurity that we we were able to write for. Obviously, we were competing with a whole lot of other people writing for the same thing. You know, we we tried to go through the city, the county, the state, the federal government, and pretty much scrape together whatever we could. And then we had great donors, not only local to Richmond, um, even though people knew that we were obviously not driving meals out to California, but one of our biggest groups when we do mailings that have signed up to get mailings from us are in California. And we've never been there. So we had people in California sending us donations saying, I love what you're doing. Thank you. So that travel, a lot of people from our travels donated to our efforts here. How did you work the logistics of reclaiming, say, fresh salmon or lettuce? Or Nobody told us we couldn't do it. And so we did it. And my mom, I, my mom grew up, I grew up a single mom of five children. And my mom would make beautiful meals out of nothing. And I think that, that I was uniquely prepared to make something. And our chefs are so talented that they were able to make beautiful one pot nutritious meals to go out to all these folks, a low sodium, fresh vegetables. And what we realized what we were doing indirectly, directly was educating folks on healthy eating, better eating. And a lot of foods that we took for granted, uh, we took for granted a lot of folks had never had before. Um, one gentleman in his 80s uh, wrote Kate and said, hey, uh, my daughter's vegan and I've been laughing at her for years, but you sent out a tofu chili and I loved it. Can I get more? And we knew then we were on to something. It was an educational process for us because what we took for granted, uh, that we thought everybody ate like was not the case. And then folks have called and say, hey, I've lost 25 pounds eating your food and I feel great. Um, my blood pressure is under control. My diabetes is under control. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And then we, for three years, had those sort of anecdotal testimonies from people in the community. And that's when we decided we're going to keep this thing moving. That was some of our February episode, The Velvet Roped Underground. Catch all episodes in their entirety on NPR.org and the NPR One app, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, recommend, and rate us. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Natalie, the Robbins School at the University of Richmond, and Nanette Shore. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. And follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. One more thing, you can catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. 
Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.